This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Laura Zarrow. The Wharton People Analytics Conference is this time once a year where we come together to geek out over analytics and the question of what we can learn from them to help individuals and organizations thrive. While much of that conversation happens on stage and over a fair amount of cocktails, it's also being advanced by Pulitzer-nominated journalist Leah Fessler, who covered the conference for Quartz Magazine at the Atlantic's Global Business Sister site. Leah's broken important new ground at the intersection of feminism and technology. A Middlebury College grad, let's all hear it for the liberal arts education, um, who started out at Bridgewater Associates. She's been published in the Washington Post, the Atlantic, and the Wall Street Journal. And she's clearly one of the most exciting new voices in journalism, which is why I couldn't be more excited to have her join us on Women at Work. Leah, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. Leah, so you were there and you took in all this programming. And, you know, we tried to make a rich program with a variety of topics. What hit you the most? What really stuck out to you as important or meaningful? Yeah, one of the things that I was most struck by was in Slack CEO Stuart Butterfield's keynote uh, interview in which he mentioned that Slack was working on a number of new products that would provide individual analytics to, you know, as an individual Slack user on uh, whether there are differences in the way that you communicate between um, when you're speaking to men and women, superiors or um, subordinates and in public and private channels. And um, for those who don't know, Slack is a, it's a workplace communication platform uh, that essentially I feel like the easiest way to describe it is kind of um, instant messaging with your coworkers all day right. long. Yeah, so there were two parts of that that I thought were really amazing. One was this idea that we can get our personal analytics beyond what I get off of my sports watch. Yes. That we could really use to learn about things that are so, we think of as so um, kind of intrinsic to who we are that we don't realize we could study them and change them, and yeah. particularly how we communicate with each other. Yeah, and so something that I'm particularly interested in is uh, linguistic patterns in uh, the way that gen- gender manifests in linguistic patterns online. Um, and so it's something that I've done a lot of research on. I published a feature last uh, last year in February, or in 2017, I believe, um, called Your Company Slack is Probably Sexist, which was on courts. And for that, I spent months interviewing women across every industry, as well as men across every industry who do use Slack to communicate all day, every day online with their colleagues. Uh, and what I found was that the same patterns, uh, the same gendered patterns that we observe in real life in meetings, men using more assertive dominant language, taking up far more space, uh, asking far less questions, women using supportive language, always kind of modifying and hedging their opinions with, you know, I don't know if this is true, but it might be true. Uh, women feeling less comfortable participating in public spaces and kind of self-segregating into these private direct message channels that are female-only spaces. Uh, those same patterns were playing out on Slack. Um, and so this is something that I was particularly interested in, it's something that I noticed personally on Quartz's own Slack, because it's not just another manifestation of gender in the digital world, because we know that gender manifests just as powerfully online through you know, decades of linguistic studies as it does in person. But this has real business uh, influence and outcomes that can be very negative. Um, as we know, psychological safety is absolutely essential to innovation and collaboration on effective teams. And uh, when, when 50% in many workplaces of your, of your 
uh, employee base are feeling kind of intimidated and uncomfortable sharing outright ideas or half-baked ideas on Slack, which is the way you communicate, then you're really stifling your own creativity. And so I was really, when I, when I first wrote this story, Slack told me that they had never heard any complaints about gender on their platform. But I was super fascinated to hear Slack CEO Stuart Butterfield talk at the Warden People Analytics Conference about the fact that they were, in fact, developing tools to track these very gendered linguistic patterns and serve them up to you on a private, individual basis. Yeah, it's just amazing. So help me translate and think through how this plays out, because I'm thinking, like, even though I'm not a regular Slack user, my whole world is in email, so it's still all written in text space. And I see this, you know, like you said, this this known pattern that... um, particularly in male, in groups with lots of men, mm-hmm. um, or where the man, men are the culture leaders of that group. The dialogue becomes short, quick. Yeah. There isn't the warm, flowery introduction. Um, it seems like they're communicating faster as a result, yeah. so more ideas are being shared. And there's a directness to it, yeah. like there's a ball in play. Exactly. And the women, what I see is it's much more like you would write a letter to somebody and warm them up. Mm-hmm. before you jump into anything. Mm-hmm. And and they're a lot more obtuse as a result. Yeah, that's a lot that's exactly what that's what you're what you're describing is exactly what women and men were describing on Slack and it's also exactly what Susan Herring who's a leading linguist uh, studying digital communication habits in the context of gender what she has found by digging deep into starting in the early 1990s when listservs first became a thing these exact patterns have just continued replicating themselves um, and so yes as you said men speaking uh, what we see in digital communication is that men uh, prioritize curtness and they prioritize having the right idea and people understanding that they have the right idea and then that conversation ending. Whereas for women, even if they believe that their idea or their opinion is correct, there's this intrinsic, uh, what we see, I mean, this is obviously, these are on averages, it doesn't apply to every man and every woman, but on average, women tend to want to further other people's ideas and create more collaborative, uh, collaborative solutions. And so you'll see things like uh, women always, as Susan Herring described, there's kind of a three-part structure. You know, you say, if we're in a conversation, I say, Laura, I really liked what you said about this, and so you appeal to someone else. And then you say, I was thinking this, and then I give my own opinion, and then I say, and then I appeal back to the group, what do the rest of you think about that? So there's that tripart structure that we, if you observe, you'll see it in meetings and we see it online. Uh, it's actually very conducive to success, though it can be, as you said, much more obtruse and create a vagueness that can be unproductive. But with men, you see, uh, no, what you said isn't right for this reason, or yes, what you said is right for this reason. This is what I think, and this should be the end of the conversation. What, of course, not as <laughs> one, but yeah. That's what I've also seen that's confusing, though, is that when women adopt the communication style of men, right. they're often seen as curt. Exactly. This is something that's super problematic, and so this is why I think that these linguistic uh, uh, analytics that Slack is talking about have such a transformative potential because as we see on Slack, and this is one of the first things that I noticed, I work in a newsroom where we're constantly debating um, ideas and story pitches and what's happening in the news all over Slack all day, every day. It has to be fast-paced by nature. And I'm a pretty blunt person, but I immediately felt the need to you know, end my statements and exclamation points, use smiley emojis instead, never just say, you know, okay or no. But I did notice that when men did that, I started internalizing it as a sense of power that I was kind of meant to be, 
you know, to be respectful towards that. But when women did it, I started to think, you know, like, oh, like she's kind of rude. Like, you know, she maybe she's not friendly. And I, I mean, this is coming from a person that's someone who's like intensely aware of gender stereotypes. <laughs> yeah, you think about this stuff all the time. <laughs> yeah, and I just noticed yeah, that's so problematic. One of the one of the women who kind of had a reputation for speaking that way at Quartz is now one of my editors and one of my closest, you know, closest peers at Quartz. And we've developed this rapport that is so much more effective because in women's only spaces, when the it's all about this concept of code switching. When the norm becomes, you know, when you set an, a public norm as a leader and a manager, which is so important in your Slack channel or your email channels, and you say, you know, we're just going to prioritize current communication. It's not rude. It's just because we think it's more efficient. Then suddenly we're all more liberated and we, we remove those value judgments. But when mm-hmm. they don't exist, we're kind of in this no man's land where we're trying always to interpret signals, but we don't have those cues that exist in face-to-face communication. You know, a woman might come up to me and say, no, I don't like this, but she's, you know, smiling and warm, and that makes me feel more comfortable. That's how we've been conditioned. But if it's over Slack, I just see no, and I think, like, oh, my God, I'm an idiot. She hated my ideas. It's the end of the world. Right, and so it's why it's so exciting that if Slack gives us some personal analytics so we can understand this, do you think they're going to come with the sophistication we need to help us navigate this quirky territory? Yeah, and I think what's what's so fascinating and where this becomes tricky, as as Stuart Butterfield was discussing, is the notion of, Uh, personal analytics and privacy. So uh, as it stands now, uh, your company has access to every, most companies, at most companies, they have access to all Slack communication. That doesn't mean they're sitting there, some like higher level God sitting there reading everything that happens on Slack that would take hours. But legally, you know, as we've seen uh, huge issues with Gawker in the past with internal communications being extradited to you know, result in this whole whole Kogan situation, tons of very high-profile lawsuits. You know, you have to be careful about what you say. But so when we talk about personal analytics, I think what, what Stuart was getting into is the complicated territory of there is so much to be gained from me finding out personally. You know, like maybe, Leah, mm-hmm. you do communicate really, you know, in a in an unhelpful way when you're speaking to men, uh, and this is how you could communicate more easily. But I might not want everybody else in my organization to see that, and it might not be conducive to my productivity for them to see it. So this is where it's hard, and we'll see what Slack does. I don't have an answer right now, uh, (laughs) but it's kind of the cat's cradle of, of, you know, how can we capitalize on these analytics and maintain privacy, but also uh, this knowledge on the on the part of the employee that, you know, your employer is looking at these potentially. It, it is complex and potent territory, yeah. and I love how you can see the fault lines in it, Yeah, um, which it also makes it not surprising that you saw the fault lines in another kind of signaling about language that was incredibly important, but moving in the other direction. Mm-hmm. Um, y- and part you're you've been nominated for Pulitzer for your work on um, Siri and Alexa and how they're responding to sexual harassment. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, so this is something that I've been really fascinated in a long time. Again, a manifestation of how linguistic and gender patterns play out in technology. So I think I mean a lot of people maybe want to think that the way that we interact with technology doesn't inform our biases or our psychology, but I think, you know, there's there's enough research already to prove that that's not true, and I think it will only continue. I mean, technology is becoming something we interact with, many of us, more than other human beings. So I was particularly fascinated by uh, this concept before the whole Me Too movement happened a year before I started paying attention to some friends who would, you know, call Siri uh, the 
like derogatory terms. I don't know if we're allowed to say them on air, but whatever. <laughs> just kind of trying to make Siri as a as a concept and as a robot subordinate to them. Um, and this is something that I had noticed since college, and I, I noticed the same thing happened when Alexa came out, which was around. It really started booming around the holiday season in 2017, and I had my cousin got one, and she kind of, you know, saying, like, screw you, Alexa, like, you suck, like, you didn't pay the right song, and all of these things, and I was I was very aptly paying attention to the way that these bots responded, and I noticed that they weren't ever, you know, they were responding so positively. Siri was literally flirting, saying, like, oh, like, I'd blush if I could when people were calling her a bitch, and I was, I was thinking, you know, and Alexa doing the same sort of deferential treatment, this got me wondering about, you know, women have existed in subservient service roles across, you know, from payphone operators, you know, whatever it might be for all of eternity. And now we've kind of digitized female servants in Siri, Alexa, Cortana, it, Google Home. It was one of the things that made me crazy when they first came out. Like, yeah, why like, were they why all they alluring women? women's voices yeah. taking commands yeah. from and everyone? So, yeah. So this feature is it dives into that. And there's a very interesting backstory about how customers actually prefer engaging with female voices. So there is a business incentive mm-hmm. in terms of sales to have a female voice, but the opportunity exists if you're going to feminize it to have them buck stereotypes about women in service roles. Instead, they were just proliferate them, actively flirting with sexual harassment, um, you know, providing really coy, uh, stereotypical female responses to abuse, um, which, of course, it's not the same as harassing a woman. We all know that. Lots of people wanted to tell me that afterwards. But there is there is a notion by which if this is how this feminized digital servant responds, and we are talking about young kids using these, mm-hmm. Siri sits in the pockets of almost everybody, you know, these will start to condition our our thoughts over time of how women should respond when you continually continuously ask them sexual favors. And when I dug into the research, it turns out that significant portion of the requests and statements that are said to digital assistants are sexual in nature. This isn't like, this isn't a rare occurrence. No, in the same world where 80 million people a day go to Pornhub, the fact that people are saying sexually abusive things to their digital assistants shouldn't surprise us. Exactly. And there are two parts of it that concern me. Like, one is what you're pointing out, that, you know, as our kids hear this, Mm -hmm. and um, and they test the boundaries or adults pass, test the boundaries. And these things come back as if that's appropriate behavior. That's its own danger. Yeah. Then there's the fact that our analytics reflect our biases. Mm-hmm. Our programming reflects our biases. It means that the people behind this have programmed this to behave that way. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And we know for a fact that Silicon Valley and Apple specifically, engineering departments are heavily male-dominated so we have reason to believe that the vast majority of people that are writing this code um, at these major, even at these major companies that promote so actively progressive values, Apple, Amazon, Google, that the majority of those people are uh, men. And as some, uh, you know, diversity advocates, specifically recommend Tracy Chow uh, with Project Include articulate so powerfully. There's not the the business incentive of having women and people of color and people of diverse socioeconomic backgrounds in these encoding and uh, program writing roles is not just to have representation in the room. It's because they spot problems that other white men aren't going to see. You know, Mm -hmm. if you have a bunch of white men sitting, white cis men sitting in a room, they might think it's funny, you know, to have Siri kind of 
have an Easter egg, have Siri joke in response to some sort of sexual harassment. And maybe they don't, and I hope that they would speak up if they didn't, but there is extreme value in having diversity in the room because they're going to, you know, as I did have hunches, like, that's not really comfortable that a white man who walks through the world with tremendous privilege and isn't sexually harassing cat calls on the daily basis might not be as sensitive to. Um, and there's, there's plenty of manifestations of this beyond sexual harassment. But we were very happy to hear uh, that a year later when the Me Too movement started, uh, a national protest against Amazon uh, with response to this, uh, this issue and her response to sexual harassment was waged uh, on the Care2 platform. And Amazon actually developed a disengage mode for Alexa, uh, they, which they wouldn't confirm as in direct response to this uh, feature, though it was nearly directly <laughs> after. Um, I want to think that you <laughs> stepped up and your voice was heard and something started to change. Yeah. So they it, two months after, they did this very quietly and we only found out a year later, but two months after the feature published, there was a lot of pushback and they created this disengage mode. So now when you sexually harass Siri or Alexa, actually, um, they respond with something like, I don't think that's appropriate or I'm not going to respond to that. So it's progress. It's not, it's, you know, it's not them telling you why sexual harassment is bad and pointing you towards educative resources, but it's a step forward. So <laughs> right. there's only so much we can ask. Yeah. Well, and also it, it says to me that as new devices proliferate, as mm-hmm. artificial intelligence expands in its reach, which also is using the dynamic of what when Alexa is responding, it's also collecting data that's exactly. teaching us natural language processing for computers. Yep. So this is part of educating the machines for the future. It's worth mm-hmm. speaking up. Yeah, it's huge. And I think that it's easy to feel like Alexa, for example, is a trivial sort of technology. But Alexa, even if you know her reach isn't the same as you know the robot that you see in Ex Machina or something like that, this is the first time that we have a personal robot essentially living in our homes and this is you know it's not even the same as siri which is embedded within our phone alexa has a certain sense of being embodied and being present you know in your kitchen it's it's an object that you and your family engage with we have research now that shows that children have a deeper attachment emotionally to alexa than to other people um an animal (laughs) yeah and so this is just the first but it is there's much reason to think that these robots are only going to continue uh, advancing and becoming more personalized. And so this tendency to want them to be female and to want them to be subservient and to want them to be, uh, you know, heteronormatively beautiful or subservient is really problematic. And I think we've already gotten too far. And uh, that's why there's so much of a push to have women in AI right now, because uh, and people of different backgrounds in AI. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.